Catch new episodes of Dial the Gate weekends at youtube.com slash dial the gate. And for the latest schedule, visit dialthegate.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special pre-recorded episode of Dial the Gate. My name is David Reed. Hope you're having a good one today, and thanks for joining us. Really appreciate you being here. We had Sally Malcolm on, I think it was in April, um, to discuss uh, the Stargate novels, and I really wanted to have her back, but this time I wanted her to bring the cavalry, a bunch of the Stargate novels writers, and that's exactly what we've done today. Uh, but before we get started, if you like Stargate and you want to see more content like this on YouTube, it would mean a great deal if you click the like button. It makes a difference with YouTube's algorithm. That pernicious algorithm is going to continue to take over our lives bit by bit and will definitely help the show grow its audience. Please also consider sharing this video with a Stargate friend. And if you want to get notified about future episodes, click the subscribe icon. And giving the bell icon a click will notify you the moment a new video drops, and you'll get my notifications of any last-minute guest changes. This is key if you plan on watching live. And clips from this live stream will be released over the course of the next uh, uh, few weeks on both the Dial the Gate and GateWorld.net YouTube channels. Without further ado, I have the pleasure of introducing, once again, Sally Malcolm, the founder. Hello. Hi. (laughs) Uh, Stargate Novels. Co-founder? Founder? Co-founder. Uh, Co-founder. Yeah. And a plethora of other individuals joining us here as well. Sally, who do we have here today? Okay, well, we have uh, my writing partner, Laura. We have written a number of books together. Laura, Laura Harper. Harper. And we have the team behind the amazing uh, Legacy series. So Melissa Scott, Joe Graham, and Amy Griswold. And we have Susanna Sinard, who's written two, is it Susanna so far? Two, two. two so far. Um, very popular fan favorite novels for us. Wow. Well, thank you all so much for being here. This is this is fantastic to have you all, all in one space. Um, news just broke that Amazon is beginning the process of purchasing Metro Goldwyn Mayer. Does anyone have uh, initial thoughts on this? Sally, do you want to, do you have something to say? Um, I don't know anything more than anybody else knows about it. So it was news to me, like everyone else. Um, I'm hoping it will be good news that they will want to invest some money in into their existing products. I assume that's why they bought the, you know, why they bought MGM. So with a bit of luck, it might be good news for a new some more Stargate content. Um, beyond that, uh, it's anyone's guess, but I'm hoping it's good news. Absolutely. Anyone else have uh, have other thoughts? Excited? Dreading this? Brad Wright, universe only? Exciting <laughs> <laughs> just because it. I think it does maybe, hopefully, fingers crossed, um, mean that we might get a little bit closer to having a new series or a new movie or some more Stargate content. And, you know, that always, when that happens, revitalizes interest in the existing series, which is just great to see new fans coming into, you know, this universe that we all love. 
yeah, that's a I, big point. Go ahead, Melissa. Yeah, I was just going to say much the same thing. And that Amazon has deep pockets cannot be bad for anybody um, and has need for more and more content. Um, that is both good and bad, but in some ways, but I don't think it hurts Stargate. Mm, exactly. Anyone else? Yeah. I think that um, my first instinct was that it was a great thing because just for the the reasons that that have already been mentioned, I guess there's a a concern that you know Amazon are so monolithic um, that it becomes a little bit too um, that you know that perhaps they try and control the content and and you know if uh, there is potential for new Stargate material that you know, perhaps it's too tightly controlled by Amazon. However, you know, that would be, that, that's just a, a small concern. I think that overall um, the the potential for new Stargate material is, is predominant. You know, I think that's what I would be looking forward to the most. And I think just in terms of content, you know, in some ways Amazon has been more willing to take risks than MGM kind of historically has been and is more willing to go for shows that are going to kind of hit niche audiences rather than having to be massive blockbusters that everybody, you know, across the globe has to watch in order to get the ratings they need. You know, I think Amazon targets, like, this will be great if a niche audience binge watches it and loves it a little bit more closely. So I'm hoping that'll be good for Stargate. We'll just have to see. I think that uh, a couple of things are at play here. And by the time that this comes out, my analysis will already have been belched onto everybody. But I mean, I think that there are two things here. I think by middle of 2033, there's no doubt that we're going to have some sign of something cooking um, in the Stargate universe, period. Um, we're going to have that ring on Amazon in some fashion in a new form. Whether or not it is Brad Wright, I think it's 50-50. They they may look at it and go, whew, 350 episodes of this thing. There's a fan base for it. Oh, it's that big? Ah, we're not gonna we're not messing with that. We are not messing with that. Um, that could be 50-50. The other thing is the expanse has been immensely well received. They picked it up, they continued it. Um, Bezos is uh, the rumors are he's a fan of it himself. So this is this is then the quality is there. I have not seen it, but I'm looking forward to mowing them all down when they are all out. And so that that bodes very 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 well um, for the long term success of something like Stargate. So we'll have to see what happens. But let's I not talk another, about um, yes. I was just going to say that I think um, a- another interesting point to think about is that Stargate or new Stargate material, new Stargate episodes have never existed in this, um, the the binge-watching world. You know, when Stargate was coming out with new episodes, it was weekly, you know, it was episodic, it was weekly. So it would be really interesting to see the impact that the the, the binge-watch culture has on a a series like like Stargate. Absolutely. And not to say that Stargate uh, hasn't been bingeable you know it absolutely yeah. has been uh it was kind of it was kind of built for that but it has never i see to your point it's never been out in terms of new content during this exactly. this era yeah. so this is a this is a big deal for all of us you know to see you know how this is going to go and what's going to work and what isn't going to work 
and yeah, but let's uh, get off the future and head back into the past. How long have you been Stargate fans? What is uh, one of your uh, favorite episodes from the franchise? And what got you motivated into writing for uh, Stargate novels? Susanna, if you don't mind. Well, I, I like to tell people, and it's true, that the first real episode of Stargate I ever watched was Mobius. So talk about sort of a confusing entry into a, uh, a series. Um, and But even though I knew that it was an alternate timeline type of thing, you know, because I've been sci-fi all my life, I was like, there's something about these characters that I find really compelling, even if I'm not completely understanding all the nuances of, of this episode. And it's frankly what kept me coming back for more. And then at the time, sci-fi was rerunning all the Stargate episodes and, and they had sci-fi Monday nights. And so my kids and I would sit down on Monday nights and, and start to watch it. And um, at that point, I'm like, they're not showing these in order. I need to buy the DVDs. <laughs> so that's how I eventually started to watch the whole series, watching the reruns on sci-fi, but um, mostly getting the whole story through the DVDs. And I was very disappointed, I will say, when I got through the whole series and found out that Sam and Jack had never officially gotten together in terms of the series because that was very much hinted at at Mobius. So um, that was sort of what prompted me to start writing science fiction was because it was so clear that they were together, but there was no real evidence of that. So, you know, shipper that I had become, I decided I needed to write that. So I started to write fan fiction and that was my entree into Stargate. So fulfilled your need. And what, it did. <laughs> what I'm not necessarily looking for um, your favorite Stargate episode. What is an episode that, that uh, for you highlights the overwhelming potential that, um, uh, that the show is for, for viewers? Um, I, the, and I am ashamed to say I'm drawing a blank on the title. It was a two part episode. It was in season eight, right before threads. It was the one that Reckoning sort of one wrapped. Thank you. Oh, yes. <laughs> because it was, the epitome of SG-1 doing everything SG-1 did best. Letting our they enemies annihilate up, one another. Well, that, <laughs> but I mean, everybody played to their strengths. Yes. Everybody was working separately, but yet at the same time. So they were still a team, even though they were all off doing their various things. And for me, it was sort of an episode that told me what Stargate was about. Exactly. That's that's excellent. I agree. Melissa. Well, uh, it's all Joe's fault. Well, <laughs> <Actually. I see. laughs> um, she got me hooked. Oh, on... Joe. Joe Graham. Uh, I no, apologize. No, Joe Graham here. <laughs> she got me hooked on Stargate Atlantis. She said, you, you want to see this? This is really good. And I said, mm, sure. Yeah. We, and watched the first episode and got to the moment where uh, John walks into the Athosian camp and introduces himself by saying, well, I like 
tea. I'll have a cup of tea. I like Ferris wheels. I like things that go very fast. And suddenly this is a very different, this is not, this is not SG one. This is a different Stargate. And I said, this is interesting. I want more. I'd promptly proceeded to buy all the DVDs, watch <laughs> all of them. Um, and then went back and watched all of SG one because that's what you do. Right. Right. <laughs> um, as far as favorite episodes, among the Atlantis episodes, of course, I'm going to cite Common Ground because I am was immediately drawn, among other things, to the villainous species who are, in fact, obligate animivores. They can't not eat people. There's nothing else they can do. And what an interesting set of villains they are and what an interesting culture is hinted at in the visuals and i thought that was fascinating and fanishly worked out a great deal of that and therefore it got involved in that in the writing that way really yeah not only is it the only thing that they can do they are purpose personified built for this by the ancients it was an yes. accident you know they didn't yes. ask to exist those no. darn ancients man very, very good. That's that's legitimate. Uh, Amy? Uh, it's also Joe's fault. <laughs> Blaming her for a lot today. <laughs> well, don't worry. She's going to have her say next. She, yes, I'm sure. So, yes, she got me into watching Stargate Atlantis. Uh, we watched all of the episodes on DVD together. And then I went back and watched as she won because that's what you do. Um, and, you know, I love both shows. I'm a fan of both. I think if I had to, you know, pinpoint an episode that to me really kind of captures some of what Stargate is, it would be Letters from Pegasus. Mm -hmm. Because I I loved that at this action-packed moment when the Atlantis team was facing, you know, the, the possibility of total annihilation and no one necessarily even ever knowing what had happened to them, that we got to take this break to see this through a number of different characters' eyes and to see what this experience of waiting for the big test that hadn't yet come was like for everybody. And that focus on emotion and the experience of being in this dramatic story for these very particular characters, I thought really captured some of Stargate's strengths in making its characters feel real for the viewers. That's that's a very insightful answer. Yeah, that um I think that one of the advantages, the the continuing advantages of the show is that it's set in the here and now. And so when they use turns of phrase like I get the picture and you know little things like that, it uh it's it's we don't have to excuse it because it's us. And when we're watching these characters, we can relate to them realistically far more than we can someone on a bridge in a perfect society wearing a spacesuit, you know. Uh, and there's just there is a there is a realism to them that is a kind of shorthand that you don't have to compute. OK, I, I don't have to get over this. I can just buy it as it is and accept that these are people that. You know, at the end of the day, when they come back through that gate, I could bump into them at the grocery store and never know that this is their world. Joe, I'm going to skip over Laura for just a moment and come back to you. Joe, 
What's happened here with Amy and Melissa? What did you do? And well, thank actually, you. it's Sally's fault. Ah. <laughs> Sally's the, the one buck. who got me into it. Um, as I recall, Sally said, watch this one episode, which was Solitudes in season one of SG-1. And she said, I know you from fandom. If you don't come out of this episode shipping, I will eat my hat. <laughs> because this will punch every single one of your buttons so i watched it and i also started watching atlantis and i re- watched the, the cu- first couple of episodes and i was like okay this is first pretty good and then i watched 38 minutes and 38 minutes was so tight and so well written and so suspenseful that i was like okay i'm hooked on this show so I think the episodes that hooked me respectively were Solitudes and 38 Minutes. Um, my very favorite episode is SG-1 episode Death Nail. Um, I am a Sam Carter fan, and that one is just, it's an amazing character piece, and it's also just amazing science fiction. Absolutely. Isn't it interesting how a lot of these smaller shows pull us in in different ways from more of the big like reckoning type shows do you know there's i I, someone once said and it was not me um that you know rob cooper can go and 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 blow stuff up so much because brad wright has as as a playwright mainly he has he has sat two people in a room together and just let them talk and by nature of of the uh, how well written the characters are and and their backgrounds and what they have to say and who the actors are portraying them, it just comes right off the page. You know, I think that's one of the things about both Solitudes and Thirty Eight Minutes is that they're really tight character pieces, and you know, it sells the characters. It's not just shipping, but it also it sells the characters and their relationships with each other. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm all for blowing stuff up. I mean, I like to look <laughs> stuff up in the books. I like to watch stuff blow up. But the reason it's exciting is because you care what happens to the characters. Yeah. That's exactly right. Laura. So I have no one to blame but myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's my obsession with Sargi. Um And I'm kind of scared to say how long ago. Probably it must be about 19, 20 years that I got into Stargate, possibly about 19 years, and it was on Sky One over here, um, the satellite channel. And it just, I kept seeing the the trailer for it, and I was like, that just looked right up my street. That looks like something that, that I would really enjoy. Then I saw the clip for Solitudes, um, and I was like, You're kidding. Yeah. My, my shipper heart, yes, that's that's the one. Uh, and then uh, Sally and I were in the same Yahoo fan group, which was email. It wasn't even like a forum. It was like we exchanged emails. And uh, then we went to, I went to my first convention in Blackpool, which is where we, um, I met Sally and a few of our other friends for the, the first time. So that was like 18 years ago when I sort of fully committed and there was no going back at that point. So here we are. But my favourite um, episode, and it just speaks to what you were saying about the like, two characters sitting in a room and talking, is Entity. 
And actually, Susanna, I thought you were going to steal. I thought you were going to say that before <laughs> I could say it. Susanna's written a, a book based around entity. Um, but yeah, so so entity, I think, just shows how good Stargate can be in the quiet moments. As much as it was a very dramatic episode, it was a very still episode as well, if that makes sense. And I just think that everyone had their moment, and the performances in that the character moments were phenomenal and uh, it's yeah I think it's not just one of my favourite Stargate episodes or, or science fiction episodes I think it's one of my favourite pieces of, of television um, and you know in, in the shows that I've watched wow even you know outside of, uh, of, of sci-fi that's fair yeah that's that's I, I Entity was um I, I think I could have I think I could have done a, a two part episode with that one you know, and Susanna Absolutely. you you've done a one of your novels ties to entity, it does yes infiltration infiltration okay uh-huh. can you give us a teaser yeah. since it's on the floor right now, <laughs> um, well it it takes place both um, right before uh, entity and also within entity um, it is sort of the the entity as it's going through the SG-1 computer trying to understand who these people are and how it ultimately comes to the choice that Sam is the best person to be infiltrated. Um, And so it refers back to a previous mission uh, in which um, SG-1 has an encounter with um, some interesting ghouls that... um, have sort of in a in in a way sort of almost a parallel uh, relationship to kind of perhaps what Sam and Jack have going on, but it's very kind of beneath the surface to coin a phrase um, <laughs> um, and sort of the outcome of that is what leads the entity to decide to choose Sam ultimately knowing how Jack reacted in the previous situation. So is there um, some sympathy for this uh, non-corporeal being? Um, Well, in, in the book, the, the entity is just sort of there going through the mission reports and plucking out the pertinent points about it. Um, But, you know, it's decision is ultimately based on its own conclusions of, of what it understands has happened in this mission and and uh, Jack and Sam's professional and and you know sort of underneath uh, personal relationship so uh, we don't really get much inside the entity's head other than it's doing its best to survive and uh, protect its own civilization that's fair you know, and we can certainly, as as humans, understand kind of where that that comes from. You know, we're we're very key. As much as we uh, try to think that we're um, all modern, and you know, oh, I'll uh, I'll 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 stick up for anyone else to the bitter end. At the end of the day, you know, we're we're still very self preservation oriented creatures. <laughs> so that speaks to that. Very cool. Um, I want to get to some of the fan questions uh, here. Gap Stargate wanted to know, and Sally, I'm going to uh, uh, start with you and work my way, way around the circle. What is a ch- one of the more challenging elements and one of the more rewarding elements about writing 
the Stargate novels? Well, I guess uh, the challenging and rewarding element is trying to make it feel like an episode of the show. So trying to capture the characters' voices and the tone of the show is a challenge, but it's also rewarding when you do it. So, um, and it's also one of my favorite things about writing sort of tie-in novels like this or fan fiction, which I write as well. Um, So I guess that, that is, yeah, I'd say that is one of the challenges, keeping it within the, the canon the show for canon yeah mm. and, and not changing things too much um uh and the challenges well for me this is just a general writing challenge is plot is plotting things out <laughs> i think uh, that's one of the things that i i find uh the most challenging but yeah it, it's keeping it making it feel like the show for the for the for the readers and there reward uh, something rewarding about it. Something rewarding, yeah. Sorry, um, <laughs> that. Well, that's probably is when you meet people who've read your books or when they contact you in some way. But especially at, at conventions, when people come up to you and and say, you know, I love this book, or are really excited about you know something you've written and, and and feel like it contributes to the show or in some way um, is part of that universe. That's really rewarding for me. Susanna. Um, I probably have to kind of uh, mirror what Sally said about that. Just trying to make sure that you are being true to the characters themselves and, and uh, getting the right, the right voice for them and um, not letting, you know, your, your own interpretations of things kind of just detract from who, you know, the characters to be from the show. Um, because sometimes you want to run away with them and give them head conversations that, you know, maybe you think they ought to have, but when you think about who the characters are, you've got to back away and say, mm. no, no, they, they really wouldn't be thinking that at this point. Mm. Um, and uh, as far as the rewards, uh, I think uh, very much like Sally said, you know, the feedback you get from people who've read it, especially if they said, Oh, you know, it felt like I was reading an episode and, you know, that is probably the best reward that you can get from it is that if you've managed to pull that off and make it come across this as something that they would have watched on, on, on TV, that, uh, it's, it makes you feel like, okay, maybe I did something right this time. Yeah. That's, you know, that's definitely a, um, and an honor to hear, I would think. <laughs> it Melissa. is. It really is. I think in terms of challenges, I want to highlight a couple of actual you know, technical writing challenges that are the things that are difficult for me. Um, you're capturing a lot of unstated world building, and somehow you have to put it onto the page. Um, specifically with the Wraith, you know what they look like, and, you, and that implies an enormous amount of information about the, their society, about what they are. It's clearly a well-worked-out world and culture and so on, and none of it is stated. We don't even we we don't even have names for them. And one of the early technical issues with Legacy was deciding how to talk about Wraith characters without using the name without 
without using the names that the Atlanteans gave them and figuring out how the Wraith would name themselves if, in fact, they did. And, you know, this is just a technical issue if you, you have, have to. Really... You have to yeah. name the Wraith. Yeah. What Andy Frizzell said, they don't have names. We don't need them. We don't talk to, no one talks to us. Yeah. But if you're going to do the books, you have to, you have to differentiate yeah. them. Yeah, the, the the big wraith, the little wraith, the you can only go you can only go so far with that as, as, as I have tried that. Uh, the other piece is capturing the actors' voices. They are all so distinct, and figuring out how to put words on paper that make you think you're listening to Radix Zelenka. And you know, there's a bunch of little tricks you can do, but. It's hard and it's fun and it's a challenge. And I have to say a cool thing that happened at a creation con in Chicago. Um, David Nichol read a section in Zelenka's voice for me out of one of the books. And it was like the best thing that ever happened because (laughs) I felt like I'd got it right. You know, (laughs) you brought Raddick to life right in front of you. Yes, it was fabulous. It was, you know, meanwhile, David Hewitt was looking for Rodney and because it was a book where the spoilery thing had happened to Rodney, he couldn't find himself. (laughs) (laughs) The one time where Rodney actually shut up. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, so those are, those are some of the challenges, very specific technical challenges. You get that with any tie in um, work, trying to create, recreate the experience of the show. But this would these were the two specific things that I found most challenging. The other thing, as far as rewards go, I get to play in a universe that I just have so enjoyed as a fan. I mean, you don't get to do that in public and you don't get to share it as widely as the tie-ins very often. And that's just been a privilege and a pleasure. Amy, your th- your thoughts on this? Well, one of the things that has been challenging doable but challenging is because the show handles certain situations in a way that's consistent from episode to episode we must have written 20 briefing scenes over the course of legacy basically every book has at least one scene that would be introduced you know on the show with interior atlantis briefing room and then they sit around a table and talk about what's happening and i had new respect for the ability of the show writers to keep these scenes interesting as you know once again here we were with a conference table and a brief discussion of what they were going to do before they went to do it but you can't skip it because that's how the characters on the show would handle approaching this problem is they'd hash out their plan for a few minutes in a briefing. And so, you know, just to handle those set elements in a way that is true to the show, but that keeps it fresh and fun and moves through them briskly is the technical challenge that I think was the most interesting as we went through writing several books in this universe. Yeah. Not only are you the the writers, but you're the directors, you know, you're framing the shot in the audience's minds. And when we say Atlantis briefing room, we see, those dang chairs and you know uh, <laughs> that 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 single space and the and the the tables that that shoot you know, that look like they shoot missiles at one another and you know there's there's only so much going on there that's that's fascinating yeah yeah there's the chair and there's the table and we're probably going to do a couple of jokes because yeah. that helps move everybody through this but at the same time we need to introduce to the audience okay what's the problem what are our options for doing 
something about it and what's the conflict because usually different people have different ideas and one of the questions is which plan are we going to run with that's why we're doing the scene to figure that out and so those repeated plot elements are really interesting to handle Mm. laura so i think the uh the most challenging thing and uh, again apologies if uh, this has been mentioned already but you you do you are operating in someone else's universe. You know, you are um, constrained by character choices, by the, you know, the, the, the creators, by, by MGM. So so there, you perhaps don't have as much uh, freedom as uh, you would, in, you know, if you were writing your original work, for example. Um, but that is also kind of a leads into the most rewarding part of it and that I think we, you know we're all fanfic writers we all love to to take a universe that is already in existence and um craft our, our own stories with it so the, the most rewarding thing is is being able to do that you know having that um empowerment and, and having that gift handed to you of uh you you love these characters mm. um that you've watched and and being able to shape a story and, and take them on a journey and and have people read that is that is uh, one of the most rewarding things for me hello joe and cat <laughs> who's this this is tolly he's joining this call <laughs> <laughs> um. black cat yeah um I think one of the things that I found most challenging is because this is not a fictional universe, this is the real world, the things which are in the real world have to be right. And it's not like Colorado Springs isn't a real town where real readers live or, you know, things like that. And so I I was so careful in the Legacy series to make everything exactly right in the real world for example in the furies there's a scene where jack and daniel are talking while daniel is driving out of the parking lot at cheyenne mountain and getting on the interstate and this is literally you can follow every turn that they're making out of the parking lot and onto the highway um just as you know in real life and for example when jack is in his office at the Department of Homeland Security on Massachusetts Avenue. I used to work in D.C. This bus Ah. stop, the circulator bus, all of these things are exactly the way they really are. So, um, yeah. Wow. That's one of the biggest challenges. So bring it to life. You are actually there. Joe, I remember you saying once that writing um, some of the legacy stuff from the perspective of the year in which you were writing was almost like writing historical fiction because the technology had changed. Um, and so you had to be careful not to talk about smartphones because they didn't have them. And so that's a whole, yeah, it's a kind of a similar element of keeping it accurate. Yeah, we've really moved on in the last like 10 years. A lot of the, a lot of the shorthand that Bluetooth really and is. things like that it, were only beginning to come in their like own. It's like historical fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Sally uh, and, and everyone, a a character who um and Sally I, I did ask you this a little bit uh I believe in in our interview before uh I want to briefly retread that with you and then go around the circle with this question the character who just comes out of your fingers the easiest 
when when they're when you're writing them and you're hearing their voices and the one that you just you know spend your time just everything comes to a grinding halt okay how would they say this um well the one that comes easiest to me is probably jack um the thing is they're all good at, in different scenes or in different times you need a different character so they're not always there's no one that is difficult to write it's just oh. you need to choose the right moment for that character's okay. voice to be the most relevant but if i was pushed i'd probably say tilk simply because he doesn't say that much but his internal dialogue is uh, sometimes the perfect one for a particular scene so okay susanna uh I'm going to have to agree with Sally again that Jack just kind of flows. I think it's just because, you know, the character that the writers and Richard Dean Anderson created is just so dynamic and so there that, I mean, you can't think Jack without hearing the cadence of his voice and, you know, his sort of snarky attitude and everything just is sort of right there as soon as you picture him. Um, As far as difficult, I'm not sure she's difficult, but the one I have a real challenge with sometimes is Sam, uh, simply because we we see scientist Sam and we see soldier Sam a lot, but we've never had a whole lot of opportunities to see Sam who's not either of those two. And as a result, um, you know, trying to figure out what her internal monologue is when she's not dealing with a science issue or a, you know, sort of a strategic issue, um, I find kind of, well, challenging. And so trying to, you know, strike the, the right tone based on what little evidence we have of Sam, the person is sometimes, um, you, you want to get it just right. And, and it can really make me, do a lot of rewrites just to make sure I'm getting it. I think it's fair when you look at an episode like Ascension, or in some cases you look at an episode like Chimera, um, off-duty Sam is kind of an awkward Sam. She, uh, this is is not where she's comfortable. She's comfortable engaging and being on uh, and, and solving uh, each, each beat as she goes through the world, like an equation. You know, uh, you work a problem, get an answer. The answer is either right or wrong. And then when mm-hmm. you get her outside of that, you know, when she's with with her people, it's it's one thing. When she's outside of that situation, when she's kind of at home on her own doing her own thing, or uh, with with Pete, um, it's not it's not the the Carter that we're accustomed to. Maybe that's it too. Maybe we're just not accustomed to seeing that side of her. But I also think that they deliberately wrote in a bit of awkwardness to her where this is, this is a working woman and this is just who she is. You mm-hmm. know? So I think that's interesting yeah. where you, you get caught on that too, because I think I'll bet you they did as well. I, I think so. And I mean, it, sometimes, you know, not to criticize, but sometimes there's inconsistencies too in the mm-hmm. off you know, off, off work Carter that we see sometimes she's like really confident. And sometimes, like you said, in other situations, she is awkward. And I think if you want to see sort of the awkward taken to the max, you look at alternate universe Carter mm. and Mobius and, you know, <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> you know? Yeah. so, um, but she is, and, you know, she just really is more comfortable behind those shields of scientists and the shield of soldier and, and, 
to to get behind that and give her an internal monologue that you know it has thing it has to do with things that aren't related to either of those you know kind of sets me back on my heels mm-hmm. sometimes to make sure I've got it the right way. Yeah. Fascinating. Thank you, Melissa. That's actually a, that's a hard one because as Sally says a lot of times you can finesse a scene by the choice of character you use for the point of view. But characters who flow for me, certainly. Um, Daniel Jackson just flows. I think it's because he talks all the time. That's, that's easy. He's got, he has so much to say and always has it. And the connections are just piled upon piled and it's, he's fun. I enjoy him that way. Um, I also find Surprisingly, the exact opposite, Ronan, very easy to write. Again, possibly because he doesn't say so much. and what it, But what he does say is inevitably to the point, may, maybe not the way that the characters from Earth expect it to be, but it usually is. And of course, I, I find the Wraith easy, but that's just me. Um, as for who's hard, Rodney is actually really hard for me. And yeah, he ought to, in many ways, he ought to be easy, but for some reason, I just, he's, he's difficult for me to get right. I have to work really hard to get into his voice and his head. Um, And Tilk is difficult, although less so than Rodney. Rodney's the one who just is always hard. Hmm. I would think with Rodney, and with Sam, I would get hung up on the technical stuff because if some if I mean if someone can look that up and say no, she wouldn't say that. <laughs> and for me, that would be like <laughs> that would be my worst fear, where it's like uh, I can't BS with this character. You know, if uh, given the topic and the situation, you know what they're saying is very much similar to an equation, and you know I have to really be on my minding my p's and q's when I'm when I'm. Uh, putting dialogue into their mouth regarding a specific situation. That would be my well, fear. And certainly that is, that's a thing. And mind you, I, I have been writing science fiction for a very, very long time. So I've gotten pretty good about finessing that, you know, they, he scrolled the equation on the board and everyone looked at it in horror. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But, you're right. You have it's getting that habit of thought that can be difficult, and Rodney, Rodney combines that with an absolute self confidence that is hard to write and make it come off as less arrogant than less arrogant than confident. And it's that's a. And especially as you get later in this in the Atlanta seasons, as he becomes a much more rounded character, as his story develops, it becomes much more important. You really have to catch that line because he never stops being so sure of himself, mm. but he also becomes a much more, I mean, I almost, I hesitate to say that Rodney McKay becomes a perceptive human being, but there are ways that he does. Yeah, he's grown. He grows over those five. He really seasons. grows. He has an edge to him, 
Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting that you characterize him as confident because I have always characterized he, he's confident in what he says, but personality wise, I've always found him to be very insecure. Mm. Yeah, maybe go ahead. The, you're you're on mute. There you go. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, I actually like writing Rodney, but it is That's why you wrote him. <laughs> that's why I did write him in Legacy a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but it is challenging, especially as you get later, because He's a, he's a complicated character and he can shift very quickly through, you know, absolute confidence about a scientific situation. Um, and when he's talking about physics and I don't really know what's going on, there are a lot of insert scientific explanation here. <laughs> Techno babble goes here kinds of things so that it doesn't break the flow. But at the same time, this can really flip into this kind of anxiety spiral talking faster and faster around the fact that we're probably all going to die at this point. And does anybody but Rodney care that we're going to die? No, probably nobody but Rodney does care. Uh, kind of spinning wheels. And then at the same time, you can go from that into a much, you know, calmer, really kind of almost cold. Okay. These are the facts. We have to fix this. Right. Or we are really going to die. Yeah. When the Let's rubber hits the road. Yeah. Not essentials. Yep. You're going to fix the real problem right now. And it's it's those shifts and going back and forth that's really so interesting about the character is capturing where his head is at a particular moment. Yeah, and I think that I think you've just nailed put your finger on exactly what the part that I find hardest is to make those shifts plausible, to make those shifts happen when when Rodney would have them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rodney's fun to write for me. Ronan is fun to write for me. I think Ronan has this really deadpan outsider's view of the Atlantis expedition that sort of cuts through some of the um, slight ridiculousness of the Earth characters sometimes when they're going on about things that are not really essential to what the real problem is. Uh, So he's just a lot of fun. I actually found Daniel Jackson kind of hard to write because I get sort of caught up in the convolutions of how he says and thinks about things and then I find that I've written a sentence that has gone on for an entire page and it has to stop you know in- <laughs> where's Jack to go ah yes. <laughs> when I'm write, trying to write Daniel is Jack to be like no stop put a, put a period start a new sentence now right. yeah, that. but that's also the character too the character does that so if it's it if it's appropriate given the situation, as long as the as long as the reader has something to hold on to while he's being dragged through this Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of situation, you know, yeah, good for them. Balance, you know, between you want to capture the character's voice and that's great, but no one wants to read a novel written by Daniel Jackson. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I bet there are a bunch of people who are going to do it in the chat. Oh, I wouldn't harpy. But it, but to your point, I hear what you're saying because his analytical side is like, oh, yeah, exactly. Yes. Yep. Joe, easier characters to write for, harder characters to write for. Actually, I'm the one who finds Sam very easy. Um, Sam is my age, and I think we share a lot of common experiences. And so I find Sam actually really easy to do. Um, hardest is definitely Rodney. Um, that's why usually in the legacy series, I bumped Rodney off on Amy. <laughs> 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 so, 
so uh, I think that's that's my hardest and easiest. Okay, that's fair. All right, everyone's kind of. I also find Taylor easy. Taylor is easier. Okay. All right, and Laura. Um, so my probably the hardest character, uh, Sal, I know you mentioned it, um, and Melissa, I think you mentioned it as well. Uh, Tilk, I find difficult because as a writer, your your instinct is to try and reach into your character's head and sort of draw out their thoughts, whereas it's you know it's hard to draw to balance that and be respectful to the character. Um, so. I find a, a fine line to kind of a you know demonstrate Hale as a grounded character without going too far. Uh, but when you get it right, it's it's very it is very rewarding. Um, my favourite character, um, and this is one that I hadn't I didn't think this would be a favourite character. But when I was writing her for the Apocalypse series, I just fell in love, and that's Janet, um, and I. I think writing a um, really kind of a, a, a kind of, because I had to really think about right, who, who is she as a person, how would she be in this situation? And I just had a, a ball at writing, writing Janet for, uh, for the Apocalypse books. That just warms my heart to hear that. Terrell Rothery and Janet Frazier. I mean, I mean, there's, there's a, there's a, uh, yeah. they are one and the same in so many ways in personality and everything else. For Sally, I've got a couple of questions um, here. Vani Nane, Vane Nane, Sally. At any point in the novels, because you have them all more or less in your head, at any point in the novels, are Sam and Jack married? Um, I don't think they're actually married in any of the novels. That they are. There's some they alternate realities in there too. Yeah, yeah, okay. but they are together okay. in a couple of the novels. But I don't think we've said that they're actually married. Okay, but there okay. are okay. the good distinction. Yeah, so in they make a sort of ca- few cameos in the Legacy series, which is set beyond uh, the end of Stargate SG One. I beyond. think the closest you let us get, Sally, was in the conversation. Between Taylor and Sam, Taylor asks Sam how many times she's been engaged, and she says three times. Well, if you're shippy and you count, that's Jonas, Pete, and so who's uh-huh. number three? <laughs> um, I think that's <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That's a great nod. I like that. And that's in the legacy books. Yeah. All right. <laughs> that is. Certainly yeah. in Mobius Squared. AU, Jack and Sam are a couple, but it's unclear. I mean, this is in ancient Egypt and it's unclear whether they're formally married in some way. Okay. Yeah. My apologies. I, that, I think that that's what we're, what, what's the uh, really grinding um, uh, Vani Nane's gears is, is whether or not they're <laughs> together. So that's good. I, I mean, think so. I didn't write Mobius Squared. Okay. If, if there's an Egyptian Mobius priest Squared, that would marry them, then that's daughter. one thing. So but, yeah. I think it's safe to say that. Yeah. yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> there yeah. you go. <laughs> Desert Puma. Sally. I mean, given that Jack and Sam are both Catholic and they're now 3,000 years before there is such a thing as the Catholic Church, they can't really get a priest to marry them. <laughs> <Right>. Exactly. <laughs> no. <laughs> 
<laughs> Desert Puma, Sally, has there ever been any interest in doing novels centered on characters that were not part of the franchise? Um, no, not really. I mean, that isn't something that we have a license to do uh, anyway. So uh, original, an original, like sort of spin-offs like Star Trek do is not something that we have really considered and it's not something that MGM would want us to do. Part of our license is to write them based on the TV shows as they are. Right. So Diana Botsford and I uh, came to you with an approach, um, what, 10, 11 years ago now? Yeah. To do just that with a project called Stargate Oblivion. And we went round and round for what, two years, 18 months? It was a while. And we kept refining and refining and refining until I forget what happened. But so there was definitely interest in terms of writers. Yes. We wanted to do a kind of Starfleet Corps of Engineers and... Um, you kept on coming back with, you know, it needs to be about the established uh, <laughs> characters because the established characters are what um, people, frankly, pay money for. So, I mean, that's and that's yeah. you, you had to look at it from that perspective. And that made perfect sense. I think the difference between Stargate and Star Trek, perhaps, is and I'm a fan of Star Trek, but is that the characters are really what people love most about Stargate. And so Stargate without the essential characters would not that it's not it's not impossible, but I think that's really what draws a lot of fans into the show. And so mm. it would be very difficult to 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 go off in a completely uh, original direction. Yeah, look at Atlantis. I mean, uh, Weir is established in in SG one first, and and Jack and Daniel are the ones who send you know Shepard and team on their journey. So, and Rodney, of course, is... Of and course Rodney, that's true, too. Poor Rodney. Susanna. Yes. Hall of Two Truths. Is this yes. another Asgard hall? No. It is no, not. This is, it is not, no. Okay. No, can, you, can you spoil us a little bit or tease us a little bit on this? Uh, the Hall of the Two Truths comes from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. And it is the final place in the person's journey through the underworld where their heart is weighed against a feather to see if they are deemed worthy to enter the afterlife. Um, so uh, the the team first separately and then as a group uh, get taken on a journey through the underworld. Um, what's the inciting for purposes- incident for this? Well, what's, what's the impetus um, of the story? Well, the impetus of the story is that there is as yet an unheard of um, group of uh, spin-offs of the Gould called the Jeddu, who uh, at about the time that the Tok'ra broke from the Gould, uh, the Jeddu also broke. Um, they were different from the Gould and the Tok'ra in that while they were a complete blending of the symbiote and the host, the resulting entity was almost a new person. It was neither one nor the other, but a complete coalescing of, of the two personalities. So was this achieved they... through technology? No. Not the quite symbiote sure like it... absorbs into the human? Like one of Igeria's well, contemporaries, I guess it would have been. Yeah, they're they're there, but through it's it's almost more of a spiritual process okay. because they are kind of the spiritual arm of the Gould, if you will, and 
they have spent their existence trying to achieve ascension, mm. which neither Gould nor, nor Tokra can achieve according to the monk at Kep. Um, but the, the Jeddu have been seeking this and when they can no longer, when they finally determine that it's something that they cannot achieve naturally through their own efforts, they started to look for ancient technology that could perhaps help them in this. And they went around the universe or the galaxy gathering up bits of ancient technology and had this sort of vast storehouse of, of gadgets that they hoped might help them ascend, but yet none of them have. So they look for another route and they have an idea that perhaps SG-1 can assist them with this. So You know, that's... see, that's the kind of pitch that makes me want to drop everything and just go and pick up the book right now. Sally, take <laughs> notice, you know, that I, I really would love, you know, when a, when a new book comes out, you know, get the, get the, the, uh, the novelist out there in front of everyone and say, okay, so here's what's coming next time on Stargate SG-1, you know? I love that. Put it to some music, you know, maybe some maybe some imagery from the show. You know, I think that that would be a great way to help increase sales. I like it. And yeah. I'm offering my services. Um, I'll take you up on that. <laughs> That's great. All right. The Legacy Series. Everyone's like, when are you going to get to the Legacy Series? Man, I'm, sh I'm sure the, the, the viewers are like, because that this is so we're at eight books now. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it's eight books. It was supposed. It's a six book, eight book series. Okay, all right, you three, lay it on me. Whose brainchild was this? Who or multiple people? Um, what the heck spawned this? You know, it's like okay, we cannot leave it in in golden in the golden um, bay. What what's what's it called? The um, San Francisco Bay. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> I was working on Death Game for Sally, and I was also frustrated with the way Atlantis ended, like a lot of viewers were. And so I said, okay, I'm going to write a big fanfic fix-it epic, right? Um, and roped Melissa and Amy into it, and then we started working on it, and I said, you know what? It wouldn't hurt to pitch this to Sally. I mean, what's the worst thing she'll say right she'll say we can't do that we have to stop at the end of the show and sally loved the idea and she said well i don't know i don't know if mgm will go for it but let's try there you go no i mean that's that's absolutely right you can only the, the worst that's going to happen is they're going to say no so i mean you got it you got to give it a shot and what do you think is uh, uh amy uh what is one of the th one of the more radical elements that you wanted to explore or one of the more exciting things that came out of it that you weren't expecting looking back on this oct trilogy or whatever you want to call it whatever that word is oh <laughs> octology <laughs> well i think we knew going into it that we were going to have to explore the point of view of the ray but i don't think we knew going into it quite how much we were going to have to explore the point of view of the ray you know one of the things that we knew very early was that we wanted to arrive at some kind of solution to the wraith problem that didn't involve either a killing all the wraith or 
B, forcibly turning the wraith into humans. We felt like the series had kind of looked pretty extensively down both of those paths. Um, none of us were really happy about going down either of those paths. It might be personally satisfying for some of the characters, but it wasn't really very satisfying for us as how to resolve this problem with a complete different intelligent species. And so we were looking for a door number three and door number three involved digging pretty deeply into who are the wraith and how are they kind of conceptualizing the problem of we have to eat other intelligent species. How do we maybe feel about this? How do we feel about being at war with other intelligent species perpetually because we're a perpetual threat to them in order to kind of even envision an ending that was not somebody's species gets wiped out for good. Mm. One of the conversations that Andy Frizzell and I have always had is she's always like, you know, I'm not evil. I'm just hungry. And I'm like, well, I mean, you're kind of going in there. It's not like you go in after, you know, Marshall Sumner, Colonel Sumner and going, you know what? Uh, I'm really sorry about this, but I kind of like need your life essence. So it's nothing personal. I'm really sorry. <laughs> no, she is playing with her food before she eats it. She is enjoying and doing what she's doing. And maybe this has just evolved out of her nature. Um, but I never like got the impression that, you know, they really are introspective on what they do to us. Is that something that legacy attempts to do? Yeah. Melissa, go ahead. I know you like this <laughs> Sorry. I think that that playing with your food is a cultural response to dealing to eating other intelligent people it's that's one way of coping as a society as a culture that it's perfectly okay to do this because that proves they're not really people therefore it's okay to do it okay now that is brilliant and so is that is are those kind of elements addressed in legacy yes wow. oh yeah some and this is how some wraith go for that some wraith are more ambivalent some mm. wraith just don't think about it at all if they can possibly avoid it. Huh. I can't think of any other species that might do things like that. <laughs> <laughs> My gosh. All right. Joe, um, what is the inciting incident for Legacy? Why do I need to run out and buy book one? What happens? If you did not like the ending of season five with Atlantis stuck on Earth and the team disbanding... And you say, you know, I want them back in Pegasus. I want the team together. Go buy the first book and see how this winds up being solved by a variety of clever stratagems, including Jack being a sneaky, sneaky man. <laughs> a sneaky, sneaky man, you say? <laughs> he is a sneaky, sneaky man. Jack okay. is manipulative and sneaky, and he manages to get Atlantis going back where it's supposed to be. <laughs> if only to get Rodney in another galaxy again. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Amy, your your pitch for legacy. Yeah, we you know, we get Atlantis back to Pegasus where they have to face all of the conflicts between the different species of the Pegasus galaxy, the different cultures of the Pegasus galaxy, the Wraith, the Janai the Satidans who are beginning to start rebuilding Satida wow. that have just been simmering under the surface all this time. And 
come up with some way to play peacemaker while facing a new and even more dangerous threat from the Wraith. Wow. And how do the Vanir work into this? I'm very curious because I've been always a very big Vanir uh, proponent, even down to their name. So tell us um, how you're going to pick up uh, the pieces in these stories with the Asgard's distant cousins. They kind of come in, you know, we, we know that they're there. We know that they have been a problem, shall we say, in the past. We know that they've <laughs> they very nearly electrocuted Daniel Jackson. But they also ha- are in a difficult situation, like so many of the peoples of the Pegasus Galaxy. Um, and their solution is potentially damaging and dangerous to everyone else. And once again, just as Atlantis thinks it's resolving some of its problems with the Wraith, here there's a new conflict and a new set of issues to uh, broker to try to broker a peace among multiple cultures. What scene uh, in that entire eight book series, at least in terms of what's out right now, is the most special for you? Um, try to make it one that you wrote. Uh, or maybe one that you wrote and um, one that one of your peers wrote in in the Legacy series itself that you think that people would be really, really interested to know a little bit more uh, about and to, to tease them to go out and, and get the book? I think the final confrontation with Queen Death on the Hive ship in the last book is one of my favorites and it is really touch and go. It is really exciting. Um, I just love that whole end sequence in inheritors with the space battle with Sam and the Hammond, with the hive ship, with the boarding party. Um, it's just exciting and it's tight and it's fun. Um, our only little whiffle was we wrote this section and we were all following different sets of characters and I was doing the boarding party and someone else was doing the space battle at the same time and all of this part and we got to the end and then we realized that Major Lauren was in three places at the same time. <laughs> and so um, we had to go straighten out poor Lauren so that he was only in one place. But it's a really fun, wow. epic ending. Wow. So you, you, I get a kind of a Lost City vibe out of this here. Um, so the Wraith yeah. call her Queen Death? Uh, yeah. The Queen Death is the big baddie. The, the I was going to say, she, she, uh, she sounds like a badass. <laughs> She's a badass. <laughs> All right. Amy, uh, standout scenes for, a standout scene for you. Well, I love the action sequence in earlier um, in the books in which the Wraith make a fairly successful attack on Atlantis. And uh, I don't think it's too spoilery to say that at that point, Rodney McKay goes missing and things begin to fall apart a little bit. Um, It's a really exciting action sequence it's a really exciting series of escalating things going wrong and it was tremendous fun to work on i think in a smaller moment and again hopefully not too spoilery 
toward the end of the series, the Atlantis team has gotten their hands on a weapon that could conceivably destroy all of the Wraith, but at a tremendous price of also killing other people in the Pegasus galaxy who have some of the Wraith genetics for a variety of reasons. The, the Taylors among them. The things Taylors like that, yeah. among them. Yes, it, this would you know kill all the wraith, but also everybody who has any of the wraith genes. So this will kill Taylor if it's deployed. Deployed. Yeah, and there is okay. a extremely tense standoff between Ronan and John Shepard about what they ought to do or not do with this object, and just writing through everyone's extremely strong, extremely difficult feelings in that scene was a really exhilarating and really hard scene to write. And I think it will be a really fascinating scene for readers to read. I don't know how Ronan would respond in that situation because no one hates the Wraith more than him. But next to Shepard, no one loves Taylor more than Ronan does. Yeah. So it's it's very hard for the characters. And I think it was very interesting to write melissa i think i'm gonna pick two relatively small scenes um one is from uh homecoming the very first book uh and sadly it's not one of mine i only wish it was um a a washington dc party scene where taylor is working the room trying to get people to agree to going back to let atlantis go back to pegasus and it's you know full of you know, jack o'neill is there john shepherd is there various uh, characters that we've heard mentioned and it's this very small scene of politics as they are in the real world experienced by taylor from pegasus who's frame of reference for this is being a traitor for her people and it's not all that different and it's just it's beautifully done it's absolutely beautifully done wow i am personally very really loved the first meeting with queen death between todd and queen death he's been trying to avoid and evade dealing with her staying out of her reach because she is uniting the wraith under her willy-nilly and when he ha- he confronts her on her ship. He's must go formally with all of his uh, officers and uh, scientists, and she dis- and she invokes an old rite of an old wraith rite of feeding on one of them. Oh shoot! To to ensure their loyalty. Wow. Wow, that's uh, that's intense. <laughs> I love I love the Wraith. <laughs> you know. They're very you punk know. rock. <laughs> wow, that's great. No, um, thank you uh, for for sharing those those details about legacy and, and filling that that world out a little bit uh, more for me. Uh, Sally, or any of you, uh, have any of you written Henry Hayes? Um, stayed away from the president. Okay. It's like, if there was any chance for him to be anywhere, it would have been in that scene with Taylor rubbing elbows with all the military people. Interesting. All right. Oh, wait, I think we did. I think we did. (laughs) What? You forgot the president? We have that. Yes. 
Yeah, I was just thinking that. Wait a minute. <laughs> so, yeah. is this um, in the Apocalypse series? Yeah. So, tell us about the Apocalypse series, Laura. Okay. Um, so, we had uh, the, the idea that we had was to kind of send, uh, send SG1 to a, a sort of apocalyptic world, um, but that is uh they they can see the sort of remnants of a a civilization and it, it was kind of an valid keep me right if I'm if I get any of these points wrong. Um but it was uh we had envisioned the, the gate malfunctioning and they get sent to a, a world where the DHD is on on the other side is non functioning and um they can't get back and there's radiation around the gate and that Daniel, of course, is injured. Lord Daniel's injured, um, and uh, so it's the the kind of a the journey of them trying to get back. And what they find on this world that the not only are the uh, the wraith on this world, but the Gwaldol are also on this world as well, as well as a a, a, a civilization that sort of lives underground. Um, so with, uh, without giving too much away, it's kind of about that journey of, you know, standard SG-1 uh, survival in the worst circumstances, um, but not all is as it seems. It's a big twist that we can't, you know. Yeah. It's a big twist that if we give it away, gives away a big bit of it. That's kind of the first yeah. book. And then the second book and the third book, fallout well, from that yes and then and then and then we go i don't think it, uh i don't know how much to say <laughs> a lot of people would have read it by now let's just say yeah, there's lots of different versions of reality or of yeah. time so there's a fracturing it. yes okay. that's a good way of putting yes. it there's a fracturing mm-hmm. and so we get to write some quite fun stuff with janet and dave dixon yeah we we have a whole thread whole plot line with those two going on um and then we have another whole plot line with mayborn which is where the president comes in okay yeah um we we honestly our heads nearly exploded trying to plot all of this out <laughs> so many threads so many threads ages of <laughs> yeah did you have to have like a workflow or like bubble a bubble sheet just to keep everything straight. We actually we went away, didn't we, to a cottage? Yeah, and we had post-it notes. I see all the way along the walls. I've still got the photographs of, of yeah. the post-its along like a full wall. Okay, and, please send them uh, so I can insert them here. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's yeah. crazy. Well, so, any way to get the story out. You know, and to make sure that, okay, that person's over there in that timeline. So that's going to affect that timeline. And uh, where's the red string and, and, the, we, and the push pins? And... Yeah. <laughs> and when you, uh, you know, the, the there would be details. If we missed details, they would be no, they would not go unnoticed. So we had to yeah. be really thorough and, and make sure that everything tied together and that there weren't any sort of major holes in the the, the the timelines that we were working with. One of the things that kind of made us want to write it or one of the ideas we had before we started writing was what if um, what if a wraith 
had a gold symbiote, you know, what, how would that work? Because we'd never seen them together, you know, because yeah. the gold and the race never met. So there's, we were there's like, There's no well, reason that they wouldn't. I mean, they're, I think they're human enough that that could probably be pulled off. Yeah. So that was, that was where we kind of, we, that was one of the things we thought we want to have a, we want to create a reality in which the wraith and the ghouls are both in existence at the same time. And, and, and what would happen, you know, if, if a crazy wraith scientist got hold of a ghoul symbiote or started breeding them to create a sort of super, super race of, of, yeah, of practically people. indestructible. Wow. Yeah, that's a little so scary. Was, <laughs> yeah, so that was that yeah. was one of our sort of uh, you know jumping off points. So then we had to create a reality in which that might happen. Uh, yeah, it's one of the cool things about alternate realities is you can do anything with it. You know, the reset button is there, and time travel too, for that matter. As long as you put all the pieces back together in the right order, minus a a, a fish or two. So, yeah, <laughs> Susanna. Um, yes. Goran Andonowski wanted to know how much time do you spend, if any, rewatching episodes of Stargate uh, while you're writing to keep the voices fresh, or are they are they programmed in your head and you never have to turn the show on? <laughs> what is your well, secret ingredient when you're cooking? Well, certainly when I wrote Hollow Two Truths, which I, actually I wrote the first draft of about ten years ago, um, you know Stargate was still on TV and, mm. and um, it was part of my daily watching routine anyway. So um, the voices were very, very fresh at, at that point. Um, Infiltration, I wrote a few years later and uh, I, in preparation for it, I went back and started to rewatch the whole series again, just to make sure that, you know, I, I had the voices and I wasn't missing key points. And then of course, when you're dealing with, um, specific episodes and events in the show, like infiltration circling around entity, you know, you've got to make sure you've got every little nuance and plot point and you don't, you know, make up something that contradicts, you know, something yeah, you that you have no excuse episode. not to nail it. Yeah. It's sitting there yeah. on the shelf on a DVD. Yep. So um, yeah, I think I probably rewatched entity at least six times while I was writing infiltration um and uh probably um that hall of the two truths uh, episode that takes place right before it is red sky and i know i rewatched that uh maybe three or four times again just because it was sort of a jumping off point for where the characters were in season five yeah, the events were um, fresh yes yes and also i i wanted address some season five issues in Hall of the Two Truths that I think kind of get overlooked when people talk about that season because um, there's sort of a progression of what I see as sort of Jack pulling back from the rest of his team. Sam specifically in the wake of Entity, I think he pulled back from her, but I think also he recognizing how close he was to his team. He kind of pulled back from them initially in that season. And you sort of see, see it in some of the interactions he has with each member of SG one. And so I wanted to just go back through the first part of that season to make sure I was interpreting things properly as, and uh, getting the touchstones of, um, of the character points right at that point in the series. So 
lots of rewatching. <laughs> Diana Botsford and I have spent a lot of time talking over the years. She and I became really close. And uh, one of the things that that are cool about the books is that you can look at the season that they're in, like much of what you've done, Susanna, and say, okay, what's going on with them right now? What are the surrounding issues with them, particularly what's been happening with them recently? What are the, um, if any, uh, allusions that you can give to coming events? What what are the tremors that are happening right now that are going to lead mm-hmm. to some of the larger quakes in the story? If if there are there are threads in the in the franchise that that point to those markers later on that aren't just completely out of the blue, and one of the things that Diana had said was was really interesting was, uh, and I believe it was with. Um, uh, her her first book, Four Dragons, is right after Daniel comes back. Uh, th- there are some of these asides that we can kind of see playing out in the show that in the books you can you can illustrate further. And what she does is she she um, explores uh, Jack's issues with Daniel once he's back, mm-hmm. and that he, there's something not not completely correct about Daniel. He's like you came back wrong. You're not the person you were when you left, and it's really grinding his gears. And then Daniel gets taken by you, um, and there's there's a whole thing that that, it, that ensues there. But I love reading these books and watching you guys play around with the season that you're in, the mythology that you're in. That's 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 happening at that time. And uh, I think Sally, I think that's one of the things that you guys just really managed to pull off very well. You're you put at the beginning of the books. This is when this is. So you can go beforehand and read it and catch yourself up if you haven't seen it in a while and then put yourself right back into it. Yeah, I think and and I think the fact that the um, people, you know, that our writers are as you can tell genuine fans of the show, they pick up on those little nuances which uh you wouldn't necessarily know if if you weren't really intimately familiar with the show. So it's one of the things I you know, I'm really keen on when we when we pick writers as people who are, you know, just know the show inside out because it you can see it in the writing and it makes all the difference. Mm-hmm. Amy Griswold, tell us a little bit about uh, Stargate Atlantis from the depths. <laughs> so it was really entertaining in From the Depths to explore uh the oceans of some of the worlds of Pegasus that was not a, you know, we'd seen that a little bit on the show. We'd seen that the puddle jumpers could be submerged, which opened up some additional vistas for the team, but there's a limit to how often you can do that on the show because the special effects budget limits you. And so getting to explore um, interaction with an intelligent race of they're basically giant squid but they're sentient giant squid oh my god (laughs) okay (laughs) yes was really a lot of fun and i I think it was it's one of those things that the books give us the opportunity to do which is tell stories that would require a special effects budget that would have made someone on the show say no I go back to the drawing board and rewrite the script so that we don't have to do an ocean and a bunch of color changing tentacled sea creatures that mm. your team is going to be interacting with while in diving suits. And, you know, this, no, no, that's too expensive unless this is a final 
climactic season battle, we're not going to spend that kind of money. The great thing with the books is that we're not limited by what would it actually be practical or cost effective to film. And so we can do some more of these fun um, alien worlds and interactions and opportunities without hitting the point that the show occasionally hit in some episodes where you can see that maybe the original script said they're pursued through the Stargate by a swarm of giant bugs. And then by the time it reaches filming, it's they're pursued through the Stargate by one fairly large bug. (laughs) And then they talk about the swarm of giant bugs that might've pursued them that we might've seen if they'd had more money. You know, it's fun to evade those constraints. Or the T-Rex in near the end of Atlantis season one. That was a T-Rex, wasn't it? Yeah, the T-Rex. Yep. And in the books, we can show the T-Rex. Exactly. That's solid. And real quick, SG-1 Heart's Desire. Pitch that to us. So uh, that was a great, I think, example of what uh, Susanna was talking about, about really focusing in um, on the aftermath of canon events. Mm. This was after the um, episodes in which in season three, I believe, and the team had this one where they went to go rescue Jacob. Okay. Yeah. So uh, that would be uh, Joel Nard's memories and the devil, you know. Yes, absolutely. And so, Coming out of that, Sam is dealing with ha- some really difficult things. It's, she's had a really hard time. Her father has been in jeopardy. She's thought he was dying. She's had to deal with having Jolinar's memories in her head, which is new to her. And some of them are upsetting and strange. And this has really pushed Sam in a way that I don't think she's been really pushed before. And so while on a planet where they're having to deal with airship pirates, which is its own challenge. A big part of the book is uh, Sam having to deal with having really faced some fears about the bad things that could happen in this kind of life and the bad things that could happen to her and to her friends and to her family and having to really overcome that as she moves forward. You know, I think early season Sam is really confident, bordering on overconfident in some ways. Science will fix everything. And Jack knows everything. And as long as they, she follows the rules and they use science and teamwork, everything's going to be okay. And I think this is the beginning of her coming to understand that everything's not always going to be okay. You can't win all of them. And yet, they're strong and she's strong and she can overcome that and carry on. I like it. Yeah, absolutely. No, there's, and Daniel too, 22, 23 different languages. Come on. <laughs> That's as many years old as he is at the start of this thing. You know, there was, there, they are experts in their field. You know, I get that. But that's one of the nice things about the books. You can get into their heads and we can hear what they're thinking and what their inner monologues are. You know, we can hear Jack beat himself up about Charlie and about, you know, his life and his choices and everything else. And so much of what is on the outside is a facade. 
It's what he puts on to get through the day to keep from shooting himself, particularly near the, you know, in, in episodes like around like Cold Lazarus and everything else, you know. And I think SG-1 gives him his, I think you'd probably all agree, gives him his purpose back. Um, Daniel gives him his purpose back in the feature film. You know, I mean, and Sally, you having to go to bats, you know, again, time and again, you know, f- for uh, 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 these these people is, you know, thank you. Thank you for all the times where you had to. I can't imagine the thousands of emails that are out there saying, okay, let's let's see if we can massage this and let's approach MGM. Oh, they went for that one or no, they didn't go for that one. You know, yeah, there's it's going to be a mixed bag. <laughs> The other Absolutely. thing that came up a lot, and I think this was across all the Stargate books, you know, and again, Sally ran tons of interference, is just MGM is rightly concerned that the character's friendship stays front and center and that we see that these characters, you know, love each other. And But at the same time, sometimes we had to put them into conflict because that's where the interesting scenes come from is when they're really torn because they have strongly different opinions. And so getting that balance where MGM was okay with it coming through enough that these are friends and they care about each other. Friends fight. We were also getting, they can fight with each other because that's, you know, that's what they would do. Yeah. Especially that, that, really that close in proximity yeah. for that period of time. Yeah, absolutely. Makes a lot of yeah, sense. There's, there's sometimes some concern about whether, you know, a, the character in the show would do this or say this particular thing or act in this particular way. Um, and I think that, Although, of course, we try to make the books as much like the television show as, as possible to a certain extent. But when you're writing a book, you're going much deeper into the characters because that's the benefit of the book. Um, and so I think there's a bit of a tension there between what maybe you wouldn't see this in a 45 minute TV show. But because we're going into the book, we can go into the characters heads and develop those emotional scenes more deeply. And I think sometimes the books, we did get some pushback on some books, um, not necessarily written by anyone here, but that they were too dark. Um, some scenes, you know, were too um, a bit grisly or a bit too, you know, heavy because the show in tone is quite light. It has its dark moments, but overall it's, you know, it's upbeat and it's fun. And obviously that's what people like about it. You don't want to go too dark, but I like to think we layer in some some slightly darker elements and layers and, and stronger flavors in, in some of the books. And that's 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 primarily I think where some of the friction with MGM comes because we're seeing things in a slightly well, more multi-leveled way. Yeah, and I think that some things that are specifically you t- you mentioned too grisly. Some things that are PG thirteen if you just see them are are rated if you are in the character's head watching it happen. Correct. Yeah. And that's I, I that was a bit of calibration that I had to make sure I was doing all the time. You know, not to do quite so heavy. Mm. I would think that dialogue that 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 tone would be just as critical as characterization and dialogue and all the other pieces that make the product that you're putting out feel like the show. You know, this is this is uh, it, it has to it has to match. It has to come from that same that same universe. But the fact of the matter is that you're 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 taking a can opener to their to their skulls and we're looking inside their souls. And we're, in many cases, uh, seeing um, 
an interior monologue for someone that, you know, we thought we knew and we didn't. And I'm sure you all go into each novel um, saying, I want to explore this, this facet of this character that we haven't seen or that we haven't had a chance to see enough. The show hints at a lot of things in the same way with the Wraith that Melissa was talking about. Visually, you see a whole culture and then in the book, uh, in the legacy series, amazingly, brilliantly, um, that culture is explained in detail and you get to see it and understand it from their point of view. So in, in a similar way to that, the characters present themselves on screen mm. Um, but when you're writing the books, you can go behind that facade. And so they, their dialogue may be the same as what they might say on television. But when you're seeing what they're thinking behind it, there's different layers to it and it, you can give it different meanings. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, Jack's sort of easy, sort of sarcastic humour. It's obviously we know that it's hiding a certain darkness of his past in the show that is canon but in the books you can see that darkness and and that for me is what makes it interesting mm-hmm. i think it's also important to remember that we are writing as fans of the show in, in the first instance and um you know we have watched these episodes five million times yeah. um and we do i think that we do have a really good understanding and knowledge of the the, the tone of the show and also who the characters are. I think we do, um, you know, we do appreciate it. It's why we love it. It's why we love it. And and we always try to be respectful of the the characters that we are, we're working with because that's, that's who we love. Um, but, you know, it is easy uh, to, when you, when you are going into characters heads to, you know, perhaps put, too much of your of yourself into mm. that, and uh, so so you know a lot of the times while yeah there, there's times when the the pushback from uh, from MGM is perhaps you know you, it's, sometimes it's hard to understand. On other occasions, it is a good sort of uh, um, you know right. a, a guidance yeah to, to sort of keep you on on track and and not stray too too far away. You can always That's go true. back to the you can source. Get a bit self-indulgent sometimes. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. You know. You're in charge of these characters yeah. so for, for 300 pages. Take advantage of that. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for joining me with this. I have one final question for all of you, and this is uh, whoever wants to jump in first is fine, but I'd like all of you to speak on it. Um, uh, SG4 is basically a foregone conclusion at this point with now Amazon uh, purchasing um, uh, MGM. They have brought up Stargate in a lot of uh, the the press information that has gone out, so they are definitely aware that this is um, quote-unquote a, a jewel in MGM's crown. I did not coin that. Someone else did. What would you most be interested in seeing next in an SG4? Okay, I'll go first because someone asked me on, this on Twitter, and so I already Perfect, have Amy. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to give you guys, that's not an easy, I don't just want a surface question. I want to, I want our surface answer. I'd, I'd really like a thought one, a thought out one. So please go ahead. What I would love to see is a disclosure scenario where the rest of the world actually becomes aware of the existence of the Stargate. Mm. I think we've done secrecy and secrecy and how do we keep working to keep the secrecy and maybe kind of improbable ways up to the end of universe. And to me, it would just be really fun to play with, okay, what is the impact on the rest of the world if suddenly they learn about the existence of aliens and the entire rest of the galaxy that's out there? And 
you know, it would give you the chance to tell some different kinds of stories involving commercial interests or scientific interests going through the Stargate, along with these kinds of military exploration stories we've been telling. So that would be my pitch. That's what I think would be fun. You don't unring that bell once it happens. You know, I mean, in sci-fi, of course, I guess you could unring it. But I mean, the can you imagine the microscope that that whole program would be under once that was revealed? Yeah, I mean, it puts it in a very different place. And there's been you know, the reluctance, because it can't be unrung to take that step, but I think it would be fun to finally take it. It's fair. Thank you, Amy. Um, I think I would like to see, it's a, we're living in a, a very different world than uh, we, we lived in when, when SV1 was, was created. Um, and I think that I would like to see it. And actually, I think it would, it would fit in quite nicely with the idea of disclosure um, of, of you know some social commentary in it, um, which I think there there was that uh, with a bit of a remove and um, in some of the original episodes, but I think right now um, in this climate, I think it needs to be very on point and and that's what I would like to see something quite insightful, some some insightful social commentary within the, the episodes. It's what sci-fi does when it's at its best. It tells yeah. us, you know, it paints it paints white on one side of Both one guy's of face and black on another side of his face, and we have a conversation, you know, and and yeah. it goes straight over the network's heads. At least it did in the '60s. So, thank you, Laura, Sally, or excuse me, Susanna. I have mixed feelings about the disclosure aspect of it. I, on one hand, absolutely, I think it would open up a whole new range of storytelling. But I think the one thing that I always appreciated about Stargate was that I could kind of believe it was real. And as soon as the story takes it into the wider world, then we know we're entering a universe that's not our current reality. And so, you know, as long as the the program is a secret, you can say, yeah, well, that's what really what's going on under Cheyenne Mountain in, mm-hmm. in Colorado. Um, so I have sort of mixed feelings, but I understand, you know, certainly it would it would broaden the, the range of storytelling and and be able to bring in a lot of new opportunities, maybe for teams and exploration and things like that. Um, I actually, when they started to make rumblings about the uh, possible revival of it, I wrote a fan fiction story where Sam was now head of the SGC. And so part of me would certainly like to see that happening. Um, but I think in further thought, she'd probably be more at like the Homeland Security level at this point, I think. But I definitely like to see um, familiar faces uh, reappearing in the show. I think it would it would really continue to sort of tie it to the fans' hearts and, um, you know, maybe make that bridge that's going to be necessary to get us from, you know, what everybody has loved for so many years to something that's going to be new and different. Um, but hopefully, don't get me wrong, I love Stargate Universe, but I think it was just too different at the time for um, the fans to sort of make that transition. And um, I think we need a, a nice bridge of continuity in, in some familiar faces to yeah. see SG4, whatever it's called, um, going forward. Yeah, I'd like, yeah I'd, I'd, I agree with you on using familiar faces as a bridge. 
but the thing that I would really like to see is bring in also bring in the new team, bring in some new faces. Oh, absolutely. G- give us a chance at some more characters just as memorable as the ones we've had before, because yeah. I think we've got the, the writers are out there that there's no reason that we can't do that. And moving that step forward, I think the using some of the familiar faces as a bridge is a good idea and matching the tone of the, of the series would be really is also really important uh, to carry it forward into you know this is this is star this is the stargate that people loved but you know new faces new chances some new ships absolutely <laughs> and shippers as absolutely. well as the ships <laughs> i think um i i agree with uh susanna um about the secret history aspect i love that sg SG-1 and Atlantis are secret histories. You can believe that these people really do live in Colorado Springs, that Daniel Jackson is ahead of you in the checkout line at the supermarket. And, you know, yesterday he was on a different planet and now he's going to the salad bar. And it feels real. And so I guess I want it to remain a secret history. Um, I'm in favor of the pure reboot because I feel like that it is a historical period. It's very much a part of its time and that a bunch of things wouldn't work the same way and the characters wouldn't work the same way unless you make the story reflect the experiences of people who are at a different point in their lives. For example, Sam has to be the age that Sam is to have had the experiences of being a woman in the military that she's had. If Sam were 20 years younger, if Sam were born in 1990, her experiences and her life would be completely different. And so I feel like, you know, in a reboot, you have to look at the characters and envision them in in a new way almost update them because if sam is a late millennial rather than mid gen x it's a different life experience um so you know i feel like a a pure reboot does have some potential it's not just retreading the same ground again it's not just doing exactly the same thing only with a different actor or you know doing as cam says in in 300 just hire some other guy so Um, i want to i want to clarify what many in the in the room are thinking are we talking uh a a complete blank slate start over from scratch or the in the show or are you talking continuing uh the brad wright's Jonathan Glassner, Rob Cooper continuity with a new group of What people. I would do is say, okay, let's say this Stargate is brought out of storage for the first time since the 1920s, only instead of it happening in 1994, it happens in 2022. Okay, so a new continuity. Yeah, a new continuity, like the Star Trek reboot in 2009. Um, you know, it's a different, that's a different uh, timeline entirely, isn't it? If we are left with that, it personally would not be my first choice. Mm-hmm. But if we were left with that, I would certainly watch. Um, yeah, because I, my I, my dream cast is Will Smith as Jack O'Neill. <laughs> would be a general at this point, more than likely. So, yeah, I mean, well, I guess he could still be a Fulberg Colonel. Sorry, Laura. Well, I was just thinking, I cannot, I cannot picture Will Smith as as Jack O'Neill. That's uh, 
certainly interesting, certainly something new to watch. So yeah, I would watch. I would watch it. <laughs> I would watch Will Smith going for the Stargate for sure. So yeah, and if absolutely. he can, if he can make a scene of standing in a in a desolate uh, uh, New York blockbuster video talking to a mannequin, fascinating. You know, I think that he can pull any pretty much anything off. So, Sally, I'll leave the last word to you. What do you want out of SG4? Well, it's interesting listening to everyone's ideas, and I'm torn between, I like elements of all of them. Um, Something that I've been thinking about recently is during lockdown, I've been watching the next Star Trek, The Next Generation with my son, who's just turned 18. I thought he'd think it was really boring because it's, you know, it's old and the, you know, it's very episode of the week. And television these days is, you know, so much more immersive and all the intricate plot lines. But he absolutely loved it. And it made me think at the time before, you know, we knew nothing about Amazon, that maybe there is an opportunity or a market for some more of that sort of fun. You don't have to have watched, you know, three prior seasons to understand what's going on. So, you know, maybe there is room for a a more of a, like Joe said, a more of a, a direct reboot of, you know, planet of the week you know episode of the week um that kind of light fun tone that um sg1 has had without making it you know too much heavy a lot more heavier and intricate but then on the other hand you know the way modern television is made is is it's just completely different isn't it so um yeah, I don't know what I'm saying. SG1 was a hybrid. <laughs> you know, they, it's it's it was, not purely yeah. standalone and it's not purely serialized. It's one of by the, the end of it, it had got it had got you know they had longer arcs and so on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I and again, also, I quite I've always liked the idea of disclosure as well. And maybe you could create a series where that was the end goal and you were going to move towards that. And I'd quite like some international teams. You know, some some other countries apart from Russia getting involved. You know, some some mixed teams from other parts of the world going through the gate. So that would be kind of fun if it, if it was more widely known, even if it wasn't completely disclosed, maybe, maybe other countries uh, have been made aware of it and are, are contributing to the teams going through the gate. That would be quite fun. Sally Malcolm, Laura Harper, Melissa Scott, Amy Griswold, Joe Graham, Susanna Parker Sennard. Thank you so much for your contributions to Stargate's uh, lore, to um, the world of reading, and you know, to fan fiction. Thank you for coming on my show. This has been fascinating, and I just, I, I cannot thank you enough for uh, uh, opening your hearts up and, and uh, sharing uh, your, uh, your, your feelings about the characters and about the, these, these stories and these, these, these threads that we care about so much. Uh, it really means a lot to me to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for it's having us. It's our pleasure. <laughs> Thanks. My thanks to Sally Malcolm and her group of Stargate novelists for coming on the show. Very special episode. It's, uh, th- that was very insightful. Uh, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you're enjoying this content, it does make a big difference if you like or share it or uh, consider writing a comment. YouTube considers all of this engagement. And uh, it makes a difference with the algorithm and, and putting in front of the faces of uh, Stargate fans who just don't know that it exists yet. I get comments all the time saying, I haven't seen this website. Maybe it's something I'm doing wrong. It's entirely possible. But, um, you know, these things take time to grow. And I am appreciative of every single step. 
If you like what you've seen and you want to support us uh, in other ways, not just just by watching, you can consider buying yourself some of our themed swag. We're now offering t-shirts, tank tops, sweatshirts, and hoodies for all ages and in a variety of sizes and colors at Redbubble. Checkout is fast and easy, and you can use your Amazon or PayPal account. Just visit dialthegate.redbubble.com, and thanks so much for your support. It is really appreciated, as is my appreciation for my moderating team. Summer, Tracy, Keith, Jeremy, Reese, Anthony, Linda, Gategabber, Fury, Jennifer Kirby. These people are responsible for making the show happen. No no man goes it alone. This is this this takes a whole village. And you know, I mean this these first ninety-nine episodes have been a treat to produce. And uh I, I'm so thankful to to my team. I'm so thankful to you for watching. My name is David Reed for Dial the Gate. I appreciate your time. Thanks for spending your weekends with us. We'll see you on the other side. Dial the Gate is hosted and executive produced by David Reed. The producer is Darren Sumner, co-produced by Linda Fury. The composer is Neil Acre. Animations by Bryce Ors. The production assistant is Jennifer Kirby. Moderators include Summer Roy, Keith Homel, Tracy Noller, Jeremy Heiner, Reese M., and Anthony Rowling. Logo design by Deborah J. Bell. Additional effects by Thomas Tots, with contributions by model makers Chris Baker, Stephen Barr, Kevin Zabo, and Tom Paris. The archivists are Linda Fury, Zachary Adams, and Fred Eric Marcoux. For general inquiries for submissions, please contact us at dialthegateshow at gmail.com. Visit our website for the upcoming schedule, as well as an archive of our past episodes at dialthegate.com. <laughs>